Hi, you're listening. Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday. To find more information about service will encourage location and ministry offerings, visit mysecond.family. Thank you for listening. Visit mysecond.family. This sermon was delivered live at our West Conway campus. Thanks for listening. I've told you before that Jackie has this dog, right? Landry. It's Jackie's dog. It's not my dog, all right? It just lives in my house. And that dog is particularly attached to my wife, Jackie, and our oldest son had it. Very, very much attached to both of them. And uh, so much so that whenever they leave the house, particularly if they leave the house at the same time, they can go to check the mail or they can go to Little Rock, it doesn't matter. That dog will sit at the door to the garage and just howl, just this deep, long, uh, just mourning how, right? And uh, as much as I pretend that I do not like that dog, it breaks my heart. The sound is just the sound of sadness. And it also makes me wonder if I love Jackie as much as I could, um, because apparently this dog is really, really, really attached to my wife. I suppose if I thought she wasn't coming back, I would sit there and howl too. But, uh, but n- nonetheless, he, he acts like that. In John chapter 13, it's a, it's a, it's a familiar scene. It's, it's one that you well know. Maybe you've seen paintings. You've, you've studied Bible verses. You've memorized maybe our, our key passage here this morning. And it's the story in which Jesus is participating in what we call the Last Supper. Sometimes we refer to it as the Lord's Supper. Uh, it goes into this practice of Eucharist and communion, which we will practice um, on uh, Palm Sunday here in a few weeks. And during that meal in which Jesus is displaying sacrificial love, showing himself as the sacrificial lamb, Jesus washes the feet of his disciples. Again, exemplifying or illustrating what it means to be a sacrificial leader, a sacrificial Messiah. He is washing their feet. He he gives them this sort of illustration. During that meal, after he has washed their feet, Uh, He says to Judas, Jesus does, says to Judas, and um, I imagine under his breath or or in a way that only Judas and perhaps John can hear, he says to him, uh, what you're going to do, you need to go ahead and go do. Which means Jesus knew full well that Judas was about to betray him and told him, you can go ahead and go do that. It's what I often say is that Judas goes to betray Jesus with clean feet and a full stomach based on what Jesus provided for him. He leaves the room and uh, Jesus tells his disciples no less than three times, I'm about to leave. It's about to be the end. I'm about to go. I'm going to leave you guys here. And this strikes fear in their hearts, much like Landry when Jackie leaves. This causes them anxiety. It causes them questions. They don't know how to respond to this. And so Jesus responds to them with words that are not only encouraging to them and to us, but also instructive to them on what they should do while he is gone. It all culminates in John chapter 14, verse 6. John chapter 14, verse 6 will be our key verse today. I'm going to put it on the television here, and I would like to read this out loud with you. I would like for you to read out loud with me. Are you ready? Let's read this together. Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
All right, it's a familiar passage, one that you know. Jesus says to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And as is the case most often with what we call familiar verses, there are some challenges that come with these familiar verses. It's the verses that we think we know the best that we often have the hardest time understanding and applying to our lives. Because of the familiarity of the passage, we can miss things. There are two particular challenges with this verse. The first one is what I call the challenge of three descriptors. The challenge of three descriptors. When we read the passage, we often think that what Jesus is saying is that he is the way, also he is the truth, also he is the life, that he is those three things. And to be fair and honest, um, that's not a bad way to understand Jesus. Jesus is the way. He is the definition, the standard for what is true and what is accurate, what is right. He is also our source of life and the source of life for all things that have been created and will be. So Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. However, most biblical scholars um, agree or at least comment that the grammar of it more than likely supports that Jesus is saying that he is the way, Truth and life are descriptors of the way. So one way to translate this would be that Jesus is saying, and he told them, I am the way, the true way, the living way. So this is an emphasis on the way. Now, show of hands, how many of you have messed around with or, or, or played with artificial intelligence yet? Any of you have done that? Chat, GPT, those sort of things. It's all in the news. Any of you who've done it, does it freak you out? Is it a little weird? Anybody? A little bit. It will freak you out. If you, if you mess with uh, artificial intelligence, it'll, it'll mess with you. And there are plenty of movies to show that it'll eventually be smarter and kill us. And so that's going to happen. I, um, this week, David and I were kind of messing with artificial intelligence and you can have a conversation with it. For those of you who don't um, know what it is, uh, the computer's just have gotten smarter, okay? And you can have a conversation with it, like you were having a conversation with a human. And so this week, David told it to, um, it said, uh, pretend you are a Southern Baptist preacher and write a short sermon on John chapter 14, verse six. And it did. It just wrote the, I mean, like that fast, it spit out this short sermon. And I've got to tell you, it was decent. It was a decent sermon. Uh, both of us were looking at this like, man, this is pretty cool, you know? It began with dear brothers and sisters, and then it went on to talk. So if you listen back to the podcast and David's sermon begins with dear brothers and sisters, he cheated, all right? I'm just gonna tell you that much right now. I don't think that that's what he's doing in Greenbrier right now, but just in case, you should listen back to the podcast. The sermon that the artificial intelligence produced had three subpoints to John chapter 14, verse six, and you can guess them. It's the way the truth, and the life. It is a common understanding to the passage. It is a common understanding, so much so that artificial intelligence believes that that's the way it is. But I think that the grammar, my opinion, is that the emphasis, at least, is on the way. This makes sense because this is what Thomas asked him in verse five. It says, how can we know the way? Jesus says, I am the way. I am the true way. I am the living way. So what it does is put an emphasis at least on the way. The other two are important, but it puts the emphasis on the way. The second challenge is related to it. How do we understand the way? What is the way we think about the way when we think about Jesus saying, I am the way? What does he mean? 
What is he implying? What is he suggesting to us? The first thing that I would say is that we consider a way in terms of a destination. In other words, Jesus is saying, at least in our minds when we first read this, that I am the way to life. I am the way to heaven. Look at John chapter uh, 14 verses 1 through 5. This is sort of the context of what Jesus is going to say in verse 6, obviously. Verse 1 says, Don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. You know the way and where I am going. Lord, Thomas said, We don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And then, of course, Jesus responds in the way that we just read about. The context of what Jesus is saying when he says, I am the way, the true way, the living way, is heaven. It's the idea of a future abode, the idea of a future dwelling with God. How many of you remember the old song, I've got a mansion just over the hilltop? How many hands. Okay. I said that in the last service, and there were some that did. There was one in particular that had never heard that song before, which was sort of shocking to me. In fact, she said she thinks of a different song. She thinks of, um, I got a big, big house with lots and lots of room. Um, Same concept, different songs in different generations. The idea being that that, uh, there's this future home in which we have uh, a room, in the audio A version, but a, a, uh, a mansion in the, uh, in the Elvis um, version of the song, right? The mansion has misled us, to be honest. If you have a King James version of the Bible, it says, in my father's house are many mansions. It's a misleading um, translation of the word. In our Western minds, and without thinking much about it, and it's nobody's fault, it's just the way that we have kind of picked it up, we have decided or, or imagined that heaven would be um, this giant green acres with, uh, you know, if you do really good in this life and you live your life well and you live your life following Jesus, then, then you'll have five to ten acres and you'll have nice white columns or a ranch or whatever it is you're into. And then um, you will have sweet tea with Jesus in the evenings on the porch swing. And occasionally you might have to bump in to your neighbors, but they're like 20 acres away, right? It's just sort of the imagery that we get when we think of heaven being a place where we get a mansion. It's just not true. It's just not accurate. In the Greek, the idea is abode. Uh, That that would be a better, uh, a living space. This text is not trying to paint a description of heaven like you might read in the Realtor app. It's trying to inspire those who were hearing it. Jesus was encouraging his disciples about a future reality that we call heaven, a very real place, a very real reality in which God dwells, in which those who believe in God, believe also in Jesus, one day will spend all of eternity. And so there are some encouragements from the text. We ought not walk away with it trying to build a picture of what heaven is, but instead walk away from it being inspired and encouraged by the reality of heaven. The first encouragement is that uh, it is something to look forward to. It is good. It is something to look forward to. 
That very first verse is probably the verse that stood out to me the most this week. It's the verse that I have uh, journaled through and meditated on this week. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. That's the King James version of it, but don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. The word troubled there really stands out. You ever, you ever been to a body of water, like a lake or a pond, in which it is so calm that it looks like it's glass? You ever seen that? I, I have sat in my kayak in the middle of Beaver Fork Lake when it looks like that. Just, it looks like you're sitting on a mirror. As far as you can see, you can see the reflection of the sky in the glass. It is just that calm. And yet there are other times when I've been on other bodies of water, there are times when I have stood at the Gulf of Mexico as a, as a hurricane is blowing in, not while it's actually blowing in, the first bands, right? I'm not that masculine. And so I stood there and the water seemed so mad, so angry, so tumultuous, so uneasy. That's the word that Jesus is using here. Don't let your heart be so tumultuous. Now, keep in mind, Jesus is not saying it is a sin. It's wrong to feel that way. He's just pointing out the reality that sometimes you will feel that way. He's encouraging you not to stay in that space. In John chapter 13, just a few verses before, Jesus says, my heart is troubled. So the reality is that there are gonna be times, seasons, days, months, weeks, hours in which Things can be like glass and perfect and peaceful and calm. And then the winds shift. There's a phone call, an email, a meeting, and your heart becomes troubled. It becomes upset. And Jesus speaks into that moment and says, in those moments, trust me. In the moments in which things are uneasy, trust me, you trust God, trust me. This won't last forever. So one of the greatest encouragements really is that whatever it is that this is, whatever it is that you are going through, it will not last forever. Trust him, he's got a plan, which is exactly the next point that he makes. Repeatedly, he uses the word prepare. Here it is once, here it is again. And I don't know exactly what it is that Jesus is doing in this time in which he's not physically walking on the planet, but I do know that he said he is preparing a place for those who trust God and trust him. And what I do understand about preparation, regardless if you are preparing a home or preparing a house or preparing a meal, it doesn't matter. There's a plan and there's a goal. What I know about heaven may not be exactly the floor plan of the place that we're going to live in or how the streets are all laid out. I don't understand or don't know any of that, but I do know that it is something to look forward to. And I do know that it will be according to his plan. That with us in mind, he is planning something. And I can trust that plan. I can be confident in Jesus' plan. Not only is it something to look forward to, not only is it according to his plan, but it is also by his power. You read this and what you get is this extreme confidence. He says, if I go, I will come back. I am preparing a place for you. I will do this. It is on me. 
I will accomplish what needs to happen according to my plan for you to look forward to it. So no matter what happens in this world, no matter what happens in your life, no matter what stirs your heart up and won't let you go to sleep or won't let you drive down the road without your mind racing in a million different directions, don't stay in that place because I've got it under control. And it won't last forever. And one day you will be with my father and you will be with me for all of eternity. That mansion song has a lot of lyrics that are quite honestly cringe. They're not biblical, but there is one line in there that is, uh, that is uh, particularly encouraging. It says, don't think me poor or deserted or lonely. I'm not discouraged, I'm heaven bound. And that's what Jesus is saying. You believe I can take care of your eternity, then believe I can take care of your right now, right here, all right? The mansion song is fun to sing. It's not like I'm not going to sing it just because it's unbiblical. I still sing country music, and it's unbiblical too. The way we tend to think about the way is that Jesus is the way to heaven, the way to life, and that is true. It's just not complete. Jesus does not teach throughout his teachings and his life and the purpose of the life that he lived, the sinless life, merely how to get to heaven or that you will get to heaven. It's not just that Jesus is teaching that he is the way to life. It's that he is teaching he is the way of life. It is a way to live. Right after Jesus says the first time, I'm going to go away, he tells the disciples the way that they should live while he is gone. It's found in the previous chapter, chapter 13, verses 34 through 35. I give you a new command. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also, you are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. A couple of questions that arise in this. If this is the way of life, this is the way that we are supposed to live, this is the way we are supposed to... When I read this, one of the first things that stands out to me is that Jesus says, I give you a new command. And yet, just in my superficial biblical knowledge, I understand that this is not a new command. It's not, this isn't the first time anybody said that we need to love each other. Earlier on in Jesus' ministry, he was asked, what are the greatest commands? And he says, well, the greatest one is to love, your, uh, love the Father, love God with all of your heart, your soul, and your mind. And the second one is like it to love your neighbor like yourself. So this part isn't new to love one another. Then what is Jesus referring to when he says that it is new? The new part is just as I have loved you. The, the normal part, the part that we all understand is that we are to love other people, but the new part is that Jesus is now the definition of what love is. That Jesus, that when we love other people, we don't get to define what love is. Love is defined by the person of Jesus, that he sacrifices for the good of others. John chapter 13, verse one says, and he loved them until the end. Now, when I read that, I used to think that he loved them all the way up until he died, right? All the way to the end. But the Greek actually means that he loved them to the extent of love, that he loved them all the way that he could love, right? So it doesn't say, and he loved them up until he died. It says that he loved them this much, all the way, as much as he possibly could. So now the new command is that we are to 
love or the disciples, when Jesus leaves, they are to love the way that he loved. But the emphasis is pretty easy to see here, right? The emphasis is not on the way that he loved. He says that once, and that's important. But what is the emphasis on? One another, one another, one another. In fact, he says it three times. He says, look, I'm going to go away, guys, and y'all need to love each other. I'm dead serious about this. You need to love each other. And I'm going to say it a third time. Love each other. Earlier, Jesus had told them that they are to love their neighbors, which is this very broad term that really literally means everyone. Love all the people. But as he's leaving, as Judas is setting into motion events that cannot be undone, as Jesus is talking to his disciples less than one day away from his murder, he is telling them and encouraging them to remember this. Make sure that you love each other, the other Christians. Love them the way that I loved you. I think he emphasizes this because it's easier for us to love people we don't know. Isn't that weird? It's a strange concept. Sometimes the people that you lose your cool with the most are like your family and you love them the most and yet they are the hardest ones for us to love. We, it's easy for us to love the stranger, to walk up to a homeless person and to share, to give up our seat for uh, some little old lady on the bus, to, to let somebody else that we don't know cut in front of us and, and, and in, the, in the pickup line or something like that. That's easy. And that, and that almost makes us feel like we are showing Christian love. And you are, that's good. You should do those things. But the real challenge, right? The real rub, the, the hard part of Christianity is loving your spouse and your kids and your friends and your church friends and, and your coworkers. Why? Because you know their personality and you don't like them. There are times where there are things that you know about them that with those kind of relationships, with the, with the relationships in which you know their personality come expectations. And now they're not fulfilling, fulfilling what you thought they should do. And so Jesus really wants to emphasize this point. The people that you know, the other Christians, the believers, the people in the church, you got to love them intentionally the way that I loved you. It's easy to love the people you don't know. It's really hard, really hard to love those that you do know. That's why he emphasizes it. That's why he pushes into it. And he says, listen, there's a lot riding on this. I want you to love the way that I loved you. And I want you to love each other, really love each other. Make sure that you love each other because this is the mark that you are one of mine. This is how they're going to know that you're one of mine, that you're a disciple. Is that the way we love each other within the church? Of course, we need to love other people outside of the church but the way that we get along, the way that we sacrifice for each other, the way we refuse to participate in gossip or slander toward one another, the way that we defend one another and protect one another and encourage one another, this is the way that they are going to know. Notice that it is communal in its nature. You need other people to live out your Christianity. There is no such thing as this Lone Ranger Christianity. We need other believers in order to encourage them and hold them accountable and to challenge them, to spur them on toward good works. If you read the New Testament and believe what Jesus teaches, then you need other Christians in order to truly live out your Christianity. That's why we emphasize not only the worship gathering, but also the small groups. 
You need to get into community with people in such a way that you know them and you love them anyways. All right? The point of small groups is not that you're going to collect a bunch of people and they're going to love each other forever. The point is that you're going to collect together and know each other and love them anyways. Love them anyways. That's the challenge. It is communal. Also, it is action-oriented. Sometimes we get confused and think that the mark of Christianity is our knowledge of doctrines or Bible verses or stories, that we can quote this or that we can quote that, that we understand the church fathers or the creeds or something along those lines. And all of those things are good. They're beneficial. In fact, I would say that they are needed. You should learn those things. However, Jesus doesn't say the mark that you are one of my disciples is that you would know all of the things. He says, the mark that you are one of mine is that you know other people and love them anyways. That you love them the way that I loved you. Remember the context of this story is Judas has left to betray him right after Jesus washed his feet. Jesus knew and Judas ate too. You gotta love them that way. You gotta push through and you gotta love them This whole story reminds me of the experience of when you or your child gets left home for the first time by themselves. Do y'all remember that? Do you remember the first time that your parents left you home by yourself? Maybe you're a sibling, maybe the oldest, particularly if you're the oldest and you had to watch your siblings and mom and dad were gonna go on a date or a church event or they just had something, or you know they were both pulled in different directions and and they call you or they let you know you're gonna be home for a couple hours. Do you all remember that? Do you remember that? I'm the oldest of five and I remember this. Um, There's one of two ways that I find that most people will go in when they're at that stage in life. There's the one way that it is all fearful to you, right? If mom and dad leave you at home and you've got the siblings and they're going to be out past dark, then you're, you're a little intimidated by it. You're scared of the whole situation. This sort of kid, this sort of person, maybe this was you, you'll go to your room and you'll have the dog with you and you'll make sure all the doors are locked and every single light in the house is on and you have your phone and you dial 911 just in case. All you got to do is press one more time, you know. And every noise is a burglar. Every sound is an intrusion. The whole thing, you are left by yourself and you are dominated by fear. And yet there's another personality. And that one has no fear. Mom and dad left, so now the oatmeal cream pies are in bed with you. The television is on something you know you're not supposed to be watching, but who's going to stop you at this point? You have one hour of screen time, and it's been four and a half hours, right? Because nobody is here to stop you. You can look at the little Find My app and realize when they're about a mile away, you jump up real quick, clean everything, and act like you have been cleaning dishes for five and a half hours, right? There is the personality that is dominated by fear. Everything is a boogeyman. There is a personality that is dominated by liberty. There are no restrictions. And Jesus speaks into both of those crowds. He says, guys, I'm about to leave and I can tell by your faces this is bothering some of you. So let me say a few words. Do not be afraid. Don't worry. I got this. It is according to my plan. Also, you can't do whatever you want to do. You have to love other people the way that I have loved you. You have to keep acting the way that I have taught you to act. The most important phrase out of all of it, and I know we've dissected, and you can disagree if you want to, maybe it is three descriptors. 
But one thing that we cannot disagree on is that the key to the verse is found there in these two words. He says, I am the way. I am the way. You see, what we don't want to do is to leave here today with the confusing idea that the sum total of Christianity is about getting into heaven or avoiding hell. That what Jesus did and what he taught was simply punching your ticket to an eternity in the sweet by and by in Beulah land. He is not teaching just that. He's also not teaching about this life filled with rules and regulations that you have to accomplish in a certain way and in a certain manner with a certain attitude in order to make God happy. He is not just teaching that. There is a real heaven and there is a real lifestyle that Christians ought to uphold. But the point, the emphasis, the impact is that Christianity is about your relationship with Jesus. That's why he says, You believe in God, believe also in me. Trust God and trust me. So the question is not when I ask you, and if I were to ask you, or or, are you going to heaven? Or, Or do you believe that you're going to heaven one day? Or this sort of stuff. That's not the emphasis. The emphasis is, do you right now have a relationship with Jesus? Do you trust Jesus? Do you believe who he is, what he said, what he does. Do you believe that and do you trust him? If you do not, then today is the day that you should trust Jesus. So with these words in our minds, as Jesus says, guys, I'm, I'm about to leave. And they believed him. They didn't argue with him. They were like, wait, Peter's like, wait, you're going to, I want to, I want to go with you. Can't. Thomas like, how would we even know the way? Guys, I'm leaving. While I'm gone, here's the deal. You need to trust me and love other people. Trust Jesus and love each other. Here's the encouragement for those of us who have trusted Jesus, that walk with Jesus, have a relationship with him. Be encouraged. Don't let your heart be troubled. This thing that you are going through, this obstacle, this challenge, the isolation and the pain, it won't last forever. It will have an end. And Jesus is completely in charge. He's got this. Don't worry. Also, love each other the way that he loved you. Do the sacrificial thing. Give, be generous, love like he loved. Find someone this week to serve. A super practical way that you could live this out is with our coming up Easter services. You could volunteer to participate in the kids' ministry or to be an usher. You could park far away and sit very close and very up front. These all you could do on Easter Sunday in order to show love for other people. You could also do all of that any Sunday to show love for other people. Until he comes back, sacrifice for the good of others. I already brought up Landry, so I might as well tell you another story about the dog. Um, one day I, was, I came home and uh, nobody else was there. Uh, Jack and the boys were off doing whatever it is they do when I'm not around. And I started to straighten up the house and got dinner started, this sort of stuff. And I'm walking through the house, picking up things. And I walk into my bedroom and I notice something unusual. We have this little chair in the corner of our room. It's a little um, chair we got like from Home Goods or something. It's just like, a, I don't, it's like an accent chair, right? It doesn't go with anything. It just sits there. And it sits there in the corner of our bedroom and it has a, has a pillow 
right there. It's sort of decorative, that sort of thing. And that chair serves one purpose. That chair is for me to sit in and tie my shoes in the morning, all right? The bed's too high, and so this little chair is where I sit and tie. It is the shoe-tying chair. But I came in that morning or that afternoon, and the pillow that is normally sitting there in the chair is halfway across the room, sitting over there across the room. Now, the boys are not allowed in our room, so I know it wasn't the boys. And I can't imagine Jackie picked up the pillow and threw it halfway across the room, right? That, that doesn't make sense, and I know I didn't do it. But nonetheless, there was a pillow in the middle of our room. And so I pick up the pillow and I walk over to put it back on the chair. And that's when I notice one of those rawhide bones right there in the middle of the chair. So obviously, my assumption is that that dog, while we're gone, kicks the pillow out and sits up in the chair and chews his bone. There's a part of this that I respect. He's not allowed on the furniture in the living room, on the sofa and stuff like this. So maybe he thinks to himself, he didn't say anything about the shoe tying chair. So that's where I will sit and eat this bone, right? Maybe that's what he thinks, but it doesn't matter. I give him back his bone, put the pillow up and went on with my day. My question or my thought is, Jesus is coming back. I believe that with every fiber in my body and with every ounce of me, I hope, It's before I'm done with this sermon. He is coming back. And he sees you. He sees us. He observes. He knows. He's participating. Holy Spirit is a part of our lives. But let's pretend like he doesn't. Let's pretend like he shows back up. What sort of evidence will we leave? What sort of evidence is there of the way we lived our life while he was gone? Are we living our lives in a way that is dominated by fear, not trusting in who he is, one that is self-serving, self-protecting, or is sacrificial for the good of others? Do we trust Jesus and love others the way that he loved us? And is there any evidence of it for when he gets back? Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday. To find more information about service times, location, and ministry offerings, visit mysecond.family. Thank you for listening.